First John 4, 7 through 12 is uh, one of the sections that we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks. We're talking through what genuine Christianity is, and there are three tests of Christianity in the book of First John. Last week we looked at the test of obedience. Those who belong to Christ, who are true believers, uh, their lives are marked by obedience to Christ. And we, we uh, looked at that and, and, and uh, the several scriptures that referring to that. Today we're looking at the, the one test that is probably covered more than any other tests in this book, and that is the test of love. The believers, genuine Christians... Their lives are marked by love for God and love for others. And I'm jumping down to chapter 4 because this particular section that we're dealing with today points us to the cross. And as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments, I wanted us to have that upon our hearts and our minds as always. But especially this morning as we think about the love that we have been shown and the love that we need to show as the people who are part of God's family. So let us now read God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but, the, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, as I mentioned before, and as uh, many people uh, are thinking about during this time of year when school is wrapping up, uh, Gabby, who just sang for us, was telling me she still had some assignments to do and, and some schoolwork finish, finishing uh, and some deadlines to meet. Well, we've got an examination of our own that we've been going through the last couple of weeks, and today we want to look at this test of love. And John probably as I said before, covers this uh, more than the other two tests. He has more to say about uh, love than the others. And we're just going to introduce the topic today and think about the demonstration of love that we have seen in Christ and to dwell upon that and have our hearts warmed be, be, uh, from that so that we might, that, that love that we have experienced and that we, are, we experience today might overflow to the lives of others whom we encounter. Well, we, we see here uh, in the first two verses uh, the resemblance of love. What does love look like? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The verses here point out to us that God is both the source and the origin of love. Verse 7 says, love is from God. He's the source of love. Verse 8 says God is love. He is the origin of love. If someone loves others with selfless devotion like God does, then it stands to reason that they have been born of God and they know God. And the reason that is is because 
Children bear the family resemblance of their parents. We had the privilege this past week of having some visitors uh, whom we haven't seen in about seven years. Uh, uh, Courtney uh, Jordan worked with us in England, was an intern, and she met a British fellow over there, and they got married, and they have three children, so we feel responsible for the creation of this family because they wouldn't have met if, they didn't, if Courtney didn't come to England. But Courtney came with her three children, and uh, it was neat to see the, the, the children, and, and we hadn't met the younger two yet, and uh, they all look like their parents. And thankfully, they act like their parents. They were very well-behaved and, and, and delightful children, uh, just like uh, Courtney and Paul are uh, delightful people. And so we saw the resemblance of their parents in these children. Now, <clears throat> whether that comes from nature or nurture, I'll let the, the biologist and the psychologist argue about that. But the truth of the matter is that, that children, no matter how they get it, they resemble their parents. They act like their parents. And John points out that if someone is a Christian who has been born of God, then that, that child of God should bear that family resemblance. And what does God look like? Verse 8 tells us, God is love. And he repeats that down in verse 16. God is love. His nature and essence is love. And he, his will and his works are born out of his love. And sometimes we question that. We think, God, why are you doing this to me when his will doesn't line up with our will and what we think we should have? And sometimes <clears throat> we would uh, wonder at his commandments, uh, how can this be loving? But God is love, and everything that he does <clears throat> is born of love. It comes out of his character. He is love. And if we know God, and he mentions knowing God twice in verses 7 and 8, if we know him, then we will also reflect uh, that, uh, that love that God is and God has. And you think of someone from a foreign country where uh, they don't speak the same language as you do. It's very difficult to know a person uh, when you don't speak the same language. Now, we've got Google Translate and things like that uh, that helps us. I uh, was uh, hearing a report from uh, one of our church planners up in North Mississippi, Mike Weinbrenner, and he has a multicultural church up there, uh, people from all different uh, countries and races, and, and there's a Hispanic family there, and they cannot speak English. And, uh, and, and Mike and this fellow use their phones to translate what each other's saying so that they can communicate one another and pray for one another. And it was really a, a neat uh, thing to see that, that it's, it's that language barrier. You have to bridge that gap in order to have a relationship with someone. And if we do not love, if we are unloving people, then we're not speaking God's language. Therefore, any claims that we make to know God whilst being unloving prove to be false. We must speak the same language that God speaks for part of his family. And the question is, do we resemble God in his love? And that's the test of the reality of our profession of faith in Christ. The old uh, song, they will know we are Christians by our love. Uh, that's probably the number one criticism that we have in our culture today, that, that we're unloving. Now, sometimes that is false, 
People have different definitions of what love is in our culture, and they accuse us wrongly of being unloving. But sometimes they're correct, and we are unloving and hypocritical, pharisaical, and we must be careful of that. But what is love? People throw the word around in our culture, um, mostly identify it with some feeling, emotion that you have. But do we really understand what love is? Well, the next couple of verses, verses 9 and 10, inform us of what love looks like. And it is all action. And I would venture to say, and, and firmly say, that love is not a feeling. It has feelings associated with it, of course, and those feelings may come and go. But love is an action. Love is a verb, as people like to say. Love is what you do. And we see it in, in uh, the love of God made manifest among us in verse 9. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now it's one wonderful thing to be told by someone that they love you. And, uh, and it's uh, necessary. You, you should tell your, the people that you love that you love them. Uh, anyone who had a, a family member who never said that they love you, a father or a mother, uh, that's very difficult. <clears throat> but you could, you could excuse that if the person really did act like they loved you, sacrificed for you and served you and, and showed that they loved you in their lives. But it would be far worse if you had someone who said that they loved you but never did anything loving towards you at all. There's a song to which I used to listen, and it captured this sentiment. It said this, Don't tell me you love me if you won't show me your love, and don't sing me your love song if I'm not who you're thinking of. You know, when, when someone says they love you and they act like they don't, their words are empty. But here, we don't have this problem with God because, A, he tells us that he loves us, and B, he has demonstrated it to us time and time again. And ultimately, and most perfectly, in this greatest revelation of love, sending Jesus Christ into the world that he might lay down his life for sinners such as we are. God has revealed his love. How? By sending his only son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a big theological word. We talked about it a couple of, of weeks ago, but for, those, for the benefit of those who weren't here, that word propitiation means a, a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God on behalf of those for whom it's made. So when uh, in the Old Testament... Uh, when there, there was sin, uh, the person would bring a lamb or some other animal to be sacrificed to, uh, to pay for their sins, to avert God's wrath. That wrath was poured out upon the animal and not on the person. And that's what we're ha we have here. The wrath of God for our sins is poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. And he... he uh, took that wrath of God when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing hell on the cross for sinners such as we are. And that uh, averting or, or bearing the wrath of God took away our human guilt. He covered our guilt. So Jesus was sent by God to be the atoning sacrifice that satisfies his wrath on our behalf and our place. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. 
in Isaiah 53. All that whole last uh, several uh, chapters of Isaiah talk to us about this one who is coming, who is the suffering servant. And it tells us there about the suffering servant that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. See, his soul makes an offering for sin. Isaiah goes on. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So through what Christ did on the cross, we are, by putting our faith in that, we are counted righteous, reckoned righteous, and he bears our iniquities. Isaiah goes on. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus Christ bore the sin of many on the cross. He is a propitiation for our sins. He was the sacrifice in our place. And instead of us bearing the wrath of God for our sins, Jesus came to earth to bear it on the cross. And that's God's provision for us. How do we square that fact that God is wrathful and loving? You know, we don't, we don't often put those two things together at the same time and, and often don't see them as compatible. But they are. John Murray explains it thus. Propiti- propitiation is to make God propitious. It is, to make, it is not to make God loving. We were the objects of his love while we were still the children of wrath. God sent his son in order that his wrath might be propitiated. The sending of his son was the provision of his love in order that his love might realize its purpose. Paul puts it more simply in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, Jesus said it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Paul explains it further in Romans 3. And I think this one really clarifies it for us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And here's the explanation of it. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just. Sin is dealt with. It's not swept under the rug. It's not excused. Sin is paid for according to the law. And he is the justifier. Through Christ, he justifies many. 
The one who has faith in Jesus is justified, declared righteous in God's sight through what Christ did. If you look at the front of your bulletin, there's this another quote by John Murray. He says it this way, This is love, without any suspension of his identity as the only begotten, and without any retraction of the infinite love the Father bore to him, the Father sent the Son to bear the full toll of holy vengeance, which was the necessary judgment of God upon our sins. What a mystery. It is the mystery of the Father's love, a mystery to be apprehended and received, to be reveled in and adored, but one incomprehensible in its greatness. Now that might beg the question, why does there have to be such a horrific punishment for our sins? Well, one of the reasons we would ask that question is we don't understand the seriousness of our sins. God is an infinite God. He is a perfect and holy God. And when we sin, we sin against a, a holy and infinite God. And the punishment for that is uh, an infinite punishment. We have refused him. And sin is the dominant problem in the world. It stains every life. It disturbs every relationship. It fixes itself on every baby. Rules the heart of every worldly person. It makes us susceptible to disease because death came into the world through sin. It made us susceptible to suffering, war, death, and ultimately hell. It brings us under the control of Satan. It brings misery. It makes us children of wrath who are enslaved to sin under the lordship of the evil one, according to Ephesians 2. It renders us unable to love God and to please God. 1 John 3 tells us that sin is lawlessness. It is the violation of God's unchangeable law. It's transgression, it's moral stumbling, it's enslavement to lust and passion, pollution, rebellion, and it produces a moral debt to God. It racks up a debt of moral, moral obligation to God that ignites the fires of hell. Sin is destructive. Sin is a curse. And Jesus Christ, because God loved sinners such as we are so much, he sent Jesus Christ into the world to pay the penalty for that sin, that sin that we so easily commit. It's the ultimate purpose of God's act of love in Christ is, verse 9, so that we might live through him. Isn't that wonderful? We deserve death, but Christ died for us. And he brings new life to us through his resurrection so that we can have eternal life. We have been loved in a way that we did not earn, in a way that we did not deserve. And when you have experienced that kind of love and really come in contact with God's love in your life, that should overflow into other people. That should overflow to other sinners around you. You know, we have excuses and reasons why we don't want to love this person or that person. But when we stop and consider how much we've been forgiven, how much we have been loved, how can we refuse to love someone else? Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When Jesus was dining with one of the Pharisees, uh, a, a prostitute came in, a woman of the city, Luke tells us, who was a sinner. 
And she wanted to show her love and appreciation to Jesus. So she brought this flask of perfume ointment in a very expensive jar. It probably was something she used in her, her work before. And she's sacrificing that because she wants to show the great love. And, and she's standing behind him and weeping. And she uh, wets his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Well, the Pharisee was indignant at this and says, well, if Jesus was truly a prophet and knew what kind of woman this was who was touching him, you know, he wouldn't allow this to go on. One wonders how he knew that she was a, a woman of the city. But Jesus stops him because he knows what he's thinking. His name was Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus says, I have something to say to you, Simon. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Now that's an easy question to answer. If you, if you owe 500 versus 50 and you're forgiven the debt, you're gonna, if, you're, if you're the guy owing 500, which is, which is more than a year's worth of wages, tens of thousands of dollars, you're going to really appreciate that person for forgiving that debt. But if, if you only owe a 20 to someone, they say, oh, forget about it, you probably wouldn't give it a second thought. But the point of this little parable that Jesus tells Simon is to make the point. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, this, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, this doesn't mean that because the lady did this, her sins were forgiven. He was, he was saying because her great sins have been forgiven that she wanted to show her great love to Christ. Simon didn't show any love to Jesus. He was rather judgmental about Jesus. So he had not been forgiven much because he didn't love much. If we're really struggling to love, it's because we haven't grasped what Christ has done for us, see? Genuine Christians grasp what Christ has done and, and, and live by faith in Christ. And that should be marked by a life of love as we understand the great sacrifice and love that Jesus has made for us. It ought to make us compel us to lay down our lives for others who need our love. But the, 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 the key is to keep the cross of Christ ever in our view and the great love that has been demonstrated for us there. That will keep us humble and that will keep us loving. So as we come to the table today, <clears throat> And uh, think about, remember Christ, thinking about what he's done, laying down his body, giving his body to be broken, shedding his blood to forgive us, the great price that he paid there for us. As we experience the love of Christ, as we, as we fellowship with him, he is here among us, and this is his table, and we, we come in to celebrate him at his table 
and to, to be a part of his, his family. Uh, as we think about those things, as we remember Christ, may we remember the great love with which he loved us as we think about his death uh, and, his, and his life as well and his resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for reminding us uh, that, that you have demonstrated your great love for us in such a way that we often take for granted. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that you are love and to know that we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, but you have, you have pursued us. It's not that we have loved you, but that you have loved us. You have done, you have initiated it. You have done it. And Lord, may we in turn love you and love others. And we pray now, Lord, as we come to your table, that we would indeed commune with you and be strengthened that we might love you and love others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.